Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Ethel Quinn, who is a senior lecturer in American Studies at the University of Manchester, about her new book, A Piece of the Action, Race and Labour in Post-Civil Rights Hollywood. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. It's good to be here. Um, This is a fascinating book uh, that speaks directly to a whole load of contemporary issues um, in um, film studies, media studies, cultural production, but also obviously is is grounded in, in a very important and and specific uh, historical analysis as well. And, and I'm interested to set the scene as to what got you interested uh, in writing about um, this this period in, in Hollywood and, and maybe writing about um, film and, uh, and race in, in general. Uh, yeah. Um, so, uh, well, I'd written a book on on gangster rap. Um, uh, and uh, from that book, looking at the 1980s and 90s and um, the emergence of gangster rap in Los Angeles um, and in the American South, and taking a kind of um, a kind of production-oriented approach, but that also looked a lot at textual analysis and reception, um, I, I realised that um, a kind of precursor, a very powerful precursor for gangster rap was... Uh, 1960s and 1970s culture, and um, particular um, black action films, black exploitation films, Sweetback, Superfly, The Mac. These were films that were sampled uh, in gangster rap, and also the kind of um, kind of ghetto archetypes, quite masculinist ghetto archetypes that um, were um, absolutely at the core of, of gangster rap. Um, these fictionalized macho archetypes. Uh, really drew on this earlier period, so that's I guess how I how I landed on nineteen um, sixties, late nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies um, film culture because that was the moment when um, these these archetypes actually that go much further back into African American folkloric history and oral culture, um, the bad man, the pimp, the, the kind of dissident masculinity that we see um, in in novels previously, they first made their way onto film screens um, in the the early 1970s. So that's how I got in. I first wrote a piece on the Mac quite a while ago, um, because that's that's very powerful as a a, um, a kind of generative text for, it's about about pimp culture in in the Bay Area, San Francisco and Oakland. Um, And so, yeah, and from there I, I, I got to Superfly, and I looked at the kind of um, kind of entrepreneurial creative, or what I'm calling in this new book, uh, the hustler creative, um, as a kind of key archetype um, within uh, film culture back in the 1970s and even in the 19, late 1960s. It's probably worth clearing the ground a bit, talking about um, the period, um, and, and you call the period the um, the transitional years, um, and I guess as well as sort of getting to grips with why that period matters. We need to know a bit about uh, what was going on in, in, in Hollywood before this. So can you kind of sketch out the uh, 
the transitional period and maybe say a bit about what exactly those years are transitioning from and, and, and to. Yeah, so um, the transitional years really comes from race sociologists um, and historians who look at that moment following the end of um, uh, formal white supremacism in America. I mean, it's, it's shocking that really until the mid-1960s and those civil rights victories, the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, that uh, America was a, it was a white supremacist state. It was enshrined in law that uh, was a kind of form of racial apartheid. Um, so so it really in the, in the mid-1960s, this momentous moment when um, these legislative victories happen in the civil rights movement, also a moment of burgeoning black politicization, black power, black consciousness. Um, and so that, that's, that's really where, I mean, I start with, with that kind of sociological and um, race historiography sort of lens. Um, and I slice into Hollywood from, from that angle. So it's kind of an interdisciplinary book. Um, and um, really, I mean, the ending of formal segregation, the ending of, of Jim Crow, formal Jim Crow, of course, it didn't really end. And we can see now with the current election, all the kind of voter suppression. And of course, we get the new Jim Crow later. So I'm not saying that all was uh, over with these civil rights victories in the mid-1960s by no means. But what happens when these formal victories occur is that the battle then commences to try and operationalize the new laws to make works, workplaces fair, to make educational uh, settings, to open up education um, and and to make to enfranchise black people and so forth. That was that's a, that was a really um, that was the beginning of actually making these uh, these new laws uh, real for you know on the ground. So to turning the kind of formal changes at the, at the, in the laws into um, you know de facto change. And so um, what happens in Hollywood then is is I think extraordinarily important because Hollywood was an, a, a hugely um, uh, exclusionary racist space it didn't necessarily think of it, itself in those terms it often tried to project an image of of, of liberalism of, of you know there was kind of pr messaging that it was um you know a space of pluralism or integration but actually hollywood is in terms of as a workplace was was you know as, as uh, the, the head of the um the eeoc the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission boss said, you know, it, it was a venal space. It was actually worse than other industries, even other cultural industries when they went to look. Um, so uh, black and brown people were really only doing jobs as messengers and janitors. Um, there'd never been um, an African-American uh, film director of a Hollywood film. And, you know, even, even after the, you know, until the end of the 60s. Um, so so that was the, this transitional moment was, was the moment when, um, when when we were transitioning from Jim Crow racism into something new, and so it was a it was a time of massive contestation over race in America. And we can see this in, in terms of representation as well. You, you mentioned quite early on in the book, uh, Gone with the Wind, which um, you know obviously is full of, I guess what we call you know just explicitly racist stereotypes, um, and yet incredibly popular you, you know something that was kind of held up as as being a a truly great kind of hollywood film and i guess this is an example of the sort of uh representations we get pre uh transitional years right right so so gone with the wind uh, is an arch racist text um you know it glorifies 
slavery um, uh, and you know post the post slavery moment. Um, you know, it wants to sort of to it romanticizes this idea of of re, of, of um, a kind of plantation uh, society in, in the most extreme sort of racist ways, and that's been that's been established by film historians. I mean, there's lot there's lots of great work on how terrible that text is. Released in 1939, pre-transition, of course. But what I wanted to show in the book was what a live text Gone with the Wind still was in the 1960s and 1970s, in the transitional period. Um, in fact, what a live text it is today. Um, we've recently had um, this kind of culture war issue around um, whether, you know, when HBO Max wanted to um, to suspend Gone with the Wind from its streaming um, after the movement for Black Lives emerged this year, and this reckoning with America's race, racist history, and the massive outcry that came um, so, uh, you know, white Americans are absolutely invested in Gone with the Wind uh, for, for racist reasons, uh, for, for a nostalgia for um, a kind of racially apartheid period. And, um, and this is certainly true in the 1960s and 1970s. So Gone with the Wind kept getting re-released after its first release in 1939. When it first was released in 1939, it was, it was, it was the longest film that had ever been released. It was a high prestige text. You know, America was very, the Hollywood industry was very proud of Gone with the Wind. Um, and then they made loads of money across those post-war years. So that when in 1967, it was re-released in the, in the cinemas and theatrical release in America, it was the second highest grossing film of the year in 1967. So that's the dawning of the Hollywood Renaissance and all kinds of new, um, more experimental, innovative kinds of uh, films that were being produced. That's what we think of in 1967. We think of uh, change and social unrest, radicalization, political aesthetic experimentation that even travels into cinema. But actually, the second highest grossing film of the year is the re-release of Gone with the Wind. And then in the 1970s, uh, the late 70s, when Gone with the Wind gets its theatrical, sorry, gets its television release, uh, it's, it breaks records. So, so it, and, it's, and when, you, when you see the, um, the, the public opinion about uh, America's favorite film, it's, it's the number one favorite film that carries on into the 80s and 90s. It's the number one favorite film in America. Now, it's not the favorite film of black Americans. And therefore, white people, white people massively mobilize around this film text. And it, and it has this, you know, and it's, it's an arch racist film text. So, yeah, I mean, we know the history of Gone with the Wind um, and how, you know, shockingly racist it was in 1939. And, and that period, actually, of film history and race is very, very well served. But I think it's, we, you know, we have to really understand um, how um, it, it continued to have extraordinary traction symbolically for white people um, in, in those post-war transitional years and beyond. I guess a sort of um, slightly uncritical or, you know, slightly un un unreflective uh, history of Hollywood would then say something like, oh, but look at In the Heat of the Night as, you know, a, a sort of an important um, film in terms of changing representations of race, of, you know, uh, offering a kind of critical perspective on, on white supremacy. Um, and indeed, in the, in the book, you, you know, you use In the Heat of the Night as an important case study, but also you try and say, actually, it's a bit of a problem um, in terms of its impact on uh, equality, both um, kind of, you know, as, as a film, but also in terms of um, its production and, and um, you know, the kind of broader uh, political economy of Hollywood. Right. Yeah. So, so in the heat of the night, um, you know, it's a kind of provocative text to, 
focus on, but I, I do focus extensively on this one film to try and really sort of um, sort of showcase the kind of model that I'm using in the book. And also because I think it just is a very, very important text for that, for those transition, that transitional moment when that, that racial contestation, that intense debate was happening and, uh, de- and, and battle over resources was happening in America. So it comes out in 1967 and, um, it, and it was a much loved text uh, uh, film to film uh, for, for black people and for white people. Americans loved this text and as it was very critically acclaimed, you know, it wins best, uh, best picture at the Oscars. Um, and so, uh, you know, and I tried to explain why it was so loved and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to uh, produce a complex reading. Um, but um, what I really want to, to, to get at is how, yeah, so on the one hand, um, it's the film which allows Sidney Poitier to become the most bankable star of the year in 1968, along with his two other releases, To Sew With Love, and Guess He's Coming to Dinner, um, the, the most, the most, the highest box office film. But the most critically acclaimed of his three films in 1967, which allowed him to become the most bankable star in 1968, um, was In the Heat of the Night. That was the one that, that had the kind of racial credibility that really credentialized Hollywood as a liberal reformist space. Um, and... Um, so it did a lot of important, um, you know, public relations work for the industry. So I wanted to to really look at that and both to sort of honour that the fact that Sidney Poitier, you know, that, that was an extraordinary feat that he became the most bankable star. And so it did showcase certain kinds of toler- new kinds of white tolerance in America that captures the transitional years and which really... Uh, you know, um, points forward to to kind of post-racial dynamics afterwards. Although, you know, we have to bear in mind that the next person to be the most bankable, next uh, non-white person to be the most bankable star in Hollywood is Will Smith in the noughties. So it is an extraordinary and aberrational outlying moment, Sidney Poitier being the most bankable star. But I do want to pause on that. Uh, you know, and that was incredibly powerful for, you know, for, for black people. And it was also, you know, a, a certain kind of represented a certain kind of racial tolerance amongst whites. Um, but the film, um, you know, uh, is actually um, quite an accommodationist text. Um, some some historians have already pointed that out. So it, it, it maps a story where he um, he he. Uh, is in a Mississippi small town and there's a murder and he, you know, he gets together with the local sheriff, the local white sheriff, um, Ross Steiger, and together they solve the crime. Um, and he's, he's a kind of uh, racial exception in an all white space. Um, and, you know, he, he sort of helps white people and he's, you know, he's, he, he's, you know, there's no sense of kind of black community. He's, you know, he's this individualist, um, extraordinarily professionalized black person, um, and so, you know, it's very Hollywoodized and so forth. Now, what, what I really wanted to show and what I think was new about my kind of approach was that I wanted to, to show how um, that film, uh, because, I, because I take this kind of um, looking at production and text together, I look at, look at production and representation, um, was how um, uh, Poitiers represented a character who, who, who is a, he, fictionally Tibbs in the, is, a, is a detective in Philadelphia, who's um, the number one homicide detective in Philadelphia, and he's earning a huge salary, much more than the Southern Sheriff. So the film represents this idea of the North as already being integrated, already having resolved its its race problem, um, and to have moved into a kind of post-racial space. And that's the premise of the film. Now, then it likes to show a kind of benighted South where things need to change. Um, But what I wanted to show was how 
actually um, this reflexively then presented a picture of Hollywood um, as being part of the, the North and West, which was enlightened, um, uh, you know, which likes to sort of show, oh, yes, in the South, they've got problems, but actually presented a picture of um, the film industry. And was, the film was used as PR work. The MPAA boss liked to showcase this film and go, go on road trips with it to show what Hollywood can do. Um, and and actually, that um, was that really captures a kind of post-racial obfuscation or denial of the fact that that, that actually in Hollywood there would not yet been a black single black director of a, of, a, of a Hollywood film. So we've got an, an incredibly racially exclusionary space in Hollywood, and um, you know lots of forces are about to try and mount this attempt to integrate Hollywood to bring racial justice to Hollywood. And Hollywood is presenting this fiction which is that northern workplaces are already fully integrated. So it's, there's a real kind of quiescence. There's a, there's, there's a real denial that goes on. A kind of, so I see the film and I read the film as a kind of um, proto-post-racial text, uh, which is actually very pro-white. You know, it's, it's kind of suggesting that there's no need for intrusive integration efforts because we're already in the, in the north and the west and in Hollywood through the screen representation uh, we've already arrived. Um, and, and actually, then I show that actually behind the scenes, it's, it's an all white production. Um, so it actually, you know, it captures the fact that behind the scenes, um, it's white people making money off the film, it's white people producing the film. The white director, Jewison, is quite a, a retreatist, quite a reactionary figure, actually. He's kind of a, a liberal in, in racial retreat. Um, and uh, yeah, the film. Um, uh, is, is reflexively helping Hollywood not to, uh, to to kind of rebuff integration efforts. There are like loads more um, things to pick up on on that point actually, because you show um, in, in the middle section of the book both how you know opportunities were essentially kind of hoarded in terms of key films and key directors, but also how there was essentially a uh, a neoconservative reaction against the affirmative action moment. And, and just as, you know, in the heat of the night at, at the end of the 60s is supposed, as you say, to be a symbol of, you know, the kind of changing or progressive or, or even um, settled new Hollywood. Actually, what's going on is both, you know, a, a lack of opportunity and also uh, a quite aggressive neoconservative reaction to, to stop affirmative action. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, picking up on on then the response. I mean, I guess there's, there's two bits there. So, so first of all, um, following this in, in this transitional moment and following this, the legislative victories and and with the strength of um, you know uh, uh, black mobilization and black power at that time, um, the, the federal government does try looks looks does this probe in Hollywood sees that it's much more. Um, white, even than television and, and then other ind- industries in in California and elsewhere, um, and really wants to uh, brings in the Justice Department really to, um, uh, to to bring to bring lawsuits against the studios and the unions. This is it's, it's an extraordinary moment. This is 1970 now, um, 69. The EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, go into Hollywood, see how bad things are, and then in 19, they, then they call in the Justice Department. So between 1970 and 1972. We get this moment where where Hollywood management and unions are facing off against the Justice Department. Um, the Justice Department want to bring in, um, you know, a kind of, uh, you know, they want to bring in targets. It's, you know, they they, they wanted to bring in quotas uh, for a brief period to actually make Hollywood change or face lawsuits. 
Um, that get, got watered down to targets, but then those targets were introduced. Um, but um, the response from Hollywood, from this kind of, uh, you know, supposedly intrusive uh, government um, um, uh, initiative, this, this kind of this federal project, um, to, to try and actually to action the, 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 the legislative victories of, of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, um, were, were powerfully repudiated in Hollywood. And this is absolutely at the centre of my book, looking institutionally at the organisations of management and labour and how um, they, they, they fought off the Justice Department and the Equal Opportunities uh, Commission. And they did it, they did it in, t- in two main ways. They did it through uh, PR, uh, through um, film text, like in the heat of the night, uh, showing Hollywood to be a liberal space and by, you know, co-opting particular civil rights leaders to say good things about Hollywood. You know, and, and, and again, my, my approach looking at production and text shows that how you can, you know, you can use Hollywood stories to paint a picture which then masks what's going on behind the scenes. I think that's a key dynamic. So that's something that Hollywood can do very powerfully to avoid change and to stop change. Um, so it, it remains an incredibly white space, um, but has these these kind of key figures, whether it's Sidney Poitier or others, who um, you know can 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 be showcased. I guess can be can, are visible on screen, and of course these are still dynamics that are with us today. Um, so Hollywood did it through, and, and I'm thinking particularly of this guy Jack Valenti, who's the head of the MPAA, the Motion Picture Association of America, uh, incredibly deft. Um, PR person uh, messaging about Hollywood being a benign racial space um, and that worked very powerfully um, and also um, really hard-nosed uh, uh, lobbying of politicians and so particularly Jack Valenti but the Hollywood industry what my book shows and what uh, is not a story that's actually been um, told before um, is that Hollywood really was behind the sacking of the head of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission Clifford Alexander um, he, you know, was forced to step down. So that affected not just Hollywood, but uh, integration efforts more generally in, in, the, in workspaces. So Hollywood has an inordinate power, not just through its symbolic representation and how that can reproduce social norms or potentially disrupt social norms through storytelling, which, you know, feeds into our, uh, our sense of, of what's, you know, social norms at you know, any, any point in history, that kind of idea of Hollywood's power, but also actually hard-nosed power of the industry um, to uh, influence politicians to speak, he, you know, Valenti spoke directly to the leader of very powerful leader of the Senate, um, uh, Everett Dirksen, um, who then uh, helped uh, helped to, to sack uh, the head of the EEOC. So there's so so it's a kind of hard behind behind the kind of facade of these you know these uh, these pictures is uh, hard nosed politicking, and Hollywood does both. If that's one half of the story, I guess the uh, the kind of unreconstructed Hollywood machine and its resistance to change. Um, you've also got another, um, and, and this isn't the right language, but you know, a much more kind of positive story um, of resistance um, and change in the industry through the efforts of filmmakers themselves. And, and in keeping with uh, the books, um, bringing together of. Um, representation and, and production in the analysis. Um, it'd be good to, to talk through some examples of resistance and change, probably through through talking about films. So you know something like Superfly, which obviously is uh, pretty famous still today. Uh, Sweetback's Ballast Song, which again 
you know, has, has, has left uh, an important legacy. These are examples of how both representations are um, challenged and changing, but also actually how um, lines of, of funding change and about how the production system changes. Sure, yeah. So um, that's right. So Stuart Hall always said, you know, we should avoid those sort of purely pessimistic accounts where, you know, the, the system always wins. Um, and, um, you know, that's not how uh, how power is negotiated in the cultural realm and in the cultural industries, even when they're very, you know, capitalistic. Um, that, you know, so that's the negotiation model. So even if we, if, if it's, you know, often the overriding narrative, and I think the overriding narrative of my book is one of, um, uh, you know, pro-white consolidation, a kind of new kind of legitimation of um, white privilege uh, uh, and, and denial. Uh, you know, that's that's what I've just been talking about. I guess is 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 the is the super story, but um, but actually the, the picture is is complex. So I really did want to capture in the book um, the complexity of actually what was an extraordinary period, the 1960s and 1970s, and and an inspirational period for for today, because there was a lot of openness, which, you know, thereafter things closed, after the transition, things closed down um, into our sort of neoliberal, uh, neoconservative order. Um, and, and it seemed like there was a lot less, well, there was a lot less political space, there was a lot less radical space for a long time. We could say today, actually, that things are, in terms of, of Hollywood, there's, there's a new kind of um, black renaissance maybe happening, you know, it's delicate but it's you know there's a there's a lot of black filmmaking and black film culture energy right now in Hollywood and I think that that really you know um you know the model for that the blueprint is from is the late 1960s and 1970s so it's not simply that I want to show a more hopeful narrative along you know to offset just the pessimism it actually we you know I think we have to show both sides if we want to capture this extraordinary period of ferment, which and 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 of possibility, also political possibility, which was the late nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies, which I think we can learn from today. So yeah, as Jack Valenti and and et al were were closing down space in Hollywood and reconfiguring, rearticulating re uh, white dominance in Hollywood in that period, there actually was, you know, quite an extraordinary black film wave. Quite you know, there were a lot of black film productions were finally made suddenly after there not being a single uh, black director, as I was saying, of a, of a Hollywood film, there, there were quite a number in the early 70s. Um, and, you know, this has to do with lots of reasons, the civil, you know, the black power, civil rights, also the changing tax regime in Hollywood that allowed for a lot more independent films to be made. It's time of crisis and reconfiguration in Hollywood and that opened spaces for different kinds of productions. There are, there are a lot of different uh, reasons we can map. And in that space, yeah, um, you know, uh, you know, and this is, it's changed a bit, but there's still a tendency to, to to see this as the black exploitation period, the black exploitation era, and to fall back on quite sort of kind of stereotypical tropes about what you know about what black film represented in that moment. And actually, when you really look into what's happening in in terms of uh, um, black themed films and black produced films, it's, there's, there's actually a, a lot. There's, there's, a, there's a you know a host of different kinds of films being made. Actually, some of the black what are called black exploitation films are some of are, are politically have quite radical energies in them, um, and you know have cultural value, artistic value. So you know I'm I'm not into you know these labels as being you know reductive, but 
Um, actually, there's a lot going on outside of black exploitation pictures as well, a lot. Um, and that's, I think, a story that's been undertold. So that's another story that I want to present in this book. Um, and yeah, just to flag two things then. Um, the first one is, you know, um, Ossie Davis and Ruby D emerge as stars of my story. Um, and um, they work with um, radical producer Hannah Weinstein and Cliff Frazier, who's a kind of labor uh, activist, community activist uh, in New York to, to found the Third World Cinema. That's an interracial uh, uh, production company and training company in cinema, um, which uh, you know, has you know, lots of stars associated with it, Sidney Lumet, lots of, lots of white leftists in Hollywood, along with um, uh, lots of African-American um, uh, uh, stars and, 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 and playwrights. And actually a lot of people have been blacklisted in, 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 with McCarthy, come, come towards something like Third World by the early 1970s. And they train up a lot of uh, black and, and Puerto Rican, it's based in New York, so particularly Puerto Rican, but also poor white uh, trainees in film to bring them into as technicians into the film industry. And they get grants from government, both state government and federal government, and they and they produce films. And the idea is you produce films and they produce Claudine, which was a success, um, right. uh, a Hollywood film, which then allows you to plow money back into the... So it's a kind of state funded, but also brings in money through film production. So that's quite an ambitious model uh, for uh, shifting um, shifting the film industry that, you know, captures a lot of, uh, actually a lot of what you've, uh, you have you were talking about in, in your new book, Dave. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think it's, you know, looking into that one, Sidney um, Poitier um, was doing something somewhat similar, but in, kind of less ambitiously. Um, Harry Belafonte, another star, he was also uh, training up and using um, government resources, uh, Ford Foundation grants to try and integrate unions. So there's a lot of really, you know, drawing on the kind of politicization of the period. There are a lot of ambitious initiatives going on. Now, just to go then to return finally then to what you were asking about, which is things like then Superfly or Sweetback. Um, I mean, I, I, the way I map it is really a turn from, you know, there's a moment, there's an optimistic moment, I think, represented by the likes of uh, Third World Cinema um, or, or uh, Harry Belafonte's initiative with the unions and the Ford Foundation of thinking that um, that state that there can be top-down change, you know, that we need to really double down on these integration efforts that are coming from the federal government, and we need to 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 really try and integrate the industry um, in that, you know, using the the institutions, uh, trying to reform the institutions, uh, and that's that was very important work. But actually, as the nineteen seventies came in, and as you were saying, the neoconservatives increasingly got a handle on how to repudiate the racial justice movement. Um, the response, I think, from black filmmakers was actually we need to do for our, for ourselves. We need to. It was it was a kind of turn towards self determination, increasing cynicism about the possibilities of post civil rights reform in anything but just name. Um, so so this is a turn towards um, you know more. This is the hustler creative that I was talking about earlier. And yeah, the likes of um, I mean Mel, Melvin Van Peebles represents this more than anybody. Melvin Van Peebles was the second. Uh, ever studio director in Hollywood um, and uh, with Watermelon Man. And he actually, he had a three picture deal with Columbia and he actually walked away from it because they didn't like the, the, the kind of content uh, and, 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 it, and the production crew he wanted to use on his second picture. 
um, uh, he wanted to, to really radically integrate the production crew and that wasn't, the unions wouldn't allow that. So the studio, you know, he couldn't really work through the studio for reasons of content and also labor. So he just walked away from his three picture deal, even though he was the, only the second ever black director. And then he made Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, 1971, which was a smash hit. Um, and and really, uh, you know, so powerfully represented how um, uh, uh, black creatives could really do for self, could really, um, you know, um, you, you know, use incredible um, performative capital and entrepreneurial and networked radical sort of energies to 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 make something outside of the Hollywood system. So that was a very very powerful moment. What's going on with gender relations in this period, both in terms of thinking about um, where, where we started this conversation about, I guess, the kind of now cliche tropes of black masculinity in the form of, you know, the hustler, the pimp uh, that comes from this uh, this period um, and, you know, the kind of, again, cliches of black exploitation films, but also in, in terms of women's role um, in this moment of Hollywood. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, as you say, the 1970s, it wasn't just in black film culture that there was a lot of misogyny, sexism, m- masculinism and so forth. It was it was much more broadly. I think we can think of, you know, Molly Haskell's From Reverence to Rape or those kind of classic texts that just map how grimly um, uh, uh, misogynist um, the, the early 1970s was. You know, this moment of, I guess, Hollywood Renaissance flowering of, you know, these productions that are all by white men. But the flip side of that is, you know, is a very, very um, misogynist period. And that is reflected, that travels into um, uh, black film culture of the period um, to a degree. Certainly, um, you know, there were there were next to no uh, uh, women working as directors. That's that's why I think it's, it's important to think of Hannah Weinstein working, um, heading up the Third World Cinema Corporation. Um, so, um, you know, there's a radical space and, and look, it's headed by a female producer um, but in, in the black film uh, wave, uh, there, are, there are no female uh, directors, uh, but actually that's consistent with Hollywood in general, where there's next to no Hollywood, uh, female Hollywood directors either or, or you know, of, of non-black film. So, um, so in the production side, which I want to look at throughout this book, there's very little going on for women. Textually, representationally, there's actually a surprising amount going on because alongside the you know the sexism of black exploitation that you've just referenced. There are actually a lot of uh, new new black heroines uh, on cinema screens that have really n- never been seen before. Um, and you know, two that I sh- that I look at in particular in my book. One is um, you know, it's Pam Greer. The emergence in the early nineteen seventies of, of Pam Greer through through black exploitation films um, like Foxy Brown and Coffee. Coffee was the first one, the one I look at in the most detail. Um, and and she's really the first. She, you know, you could you know, that that for a week, Coffee was the highest-grossing film in America. So that you know that that film made a lot of money. A lot of people watched it, and she was actually the first action babe. Uh, action babe cinema, something you know that really has taken off in the post-civil rights period. But she, she was she was the first action babe. She was like a, you know, also like the archetype of the final girl. You know that we talk that we think of. Um, but you know, as as I argue, you know, she's actually a sexualized final girl. So she she manages to use whatever is to hand to to you know, it's kind of vi- vigilante style film to um, you know to um, uh, fight against these really grossly misogynist men, um, you know, malfessant men in her life, um, you know, who are 
abusing her and she uses whatever's to hand, you know, whatever resources, that's the kind of final girl element. Um, and she wins out in the end, but she's done, she's done so as a sexualized woman rather than um, as, you know, I guess the final girl later, if we think of things like Halloween, you know, the idea is that if you, you know, were chased, then, uh, you, you know, you end up on top, but all the sexualized women end up dying. So they're kind of punished. But so Pam Greer actually is this action babe, the sexualized action babe. And that's a really interesting early archetype. And it's particularly for, for a black woman. So so I think things like Coffee and Foxy Brown, complex, problematic gender politics for sure, but very interesting texts. And she did emerge as one of the key female stars of the 1970s, along with people like Barbara Streisand, um, Jane Fonda. Pam Greer was probably the third most uh, important female star for a few years there in the 1970s. And the other one I just point to quickly is, is going back to Claudine, which was the main, the biggest release of um, third world cinema. Um, and Claudine um, is um, played by Diane Carroll. Is she, she's actually a, she's a working class single mother of six children uh, who have different fathers. So, uh, and, 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 and it's a comedy. Um, and, and so, you know, this is a couple of years before Reagan coins this this terrible racist trope that the welfare queen and all that you know neoconservative uh, doubling down on you know on 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 racist wedge issues of the 1980s and so forth. Um, so just before Reagan takes office and starts coining, he first uses the term welfare queen in 1978. Um, but here's a film in 19 in the mid 1970s in which. You know, uh, a single—it's about a single mother heroine um, and uh, and a romance and about her children and about it's a melodrama uh, and a comedy. So um, I think there's actually quite a lot of space. They're just two representative texts that I pick on, but there's actually quite a lot of space, more than is 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 recognised for black female representation in the 1970s cinema. How does the period end, both uh, in terms of the um, kind of uh, I suppose you know changes in. Uh, in Hollywood and, and the kind of decline of the uh, studio-made black film, but also in terms of how, uh, I guess, a kind of uh, counter-revolution of particular kinds of uh, white immigrant um, representations, um, you know, sort of flourish and uh, really, really triumph by the time we're getting into the mid to late 70s. Yeah, well, it, it ends abruptly. Well, I mean, I, I guess there's these mounting forces of reaction. Um, so it's it's not abrupt in the story I tell. But actually, in terms of the number of black productions, black themed films and black directed films, it kind of really falls off a cliff in the mid 1970s. Um, that's partly, uh, well, you know, there's, there's multiple determinants of that. Um, uh, this is the moment of the, the Hollywood, uh, the new Hollywood consensus. Hollywood's been losing money. Um, uh, has been in crisis. Some studios have folded. Some studios have almost folded. So uh, by the mid 1970s, this consolidation means that um, by the late 70s, about, about half the number of productions were made as had been made in the early 1970s. So there's a move towards uh, consolidation, blockbuster productions. Um, it's 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 really um, fueled by um, the changes to the tax law that make uh, it, you know uh, films a lot less a lot more risky. Uh, to make because um, you couldn't write off debt and so forth um, and, and uh, uh, through through tax. So um, so yeah. So there's suddenly uh, there's a move away from from black productions. And you know I I do look at I look at Rocky in 1976 uh, just on that point of white ethnic revival that you were just talking about. There's already good scholarship on 
the symbolic importance of films like Rocky. Rocky was the runaway hit of 1976. Um, and, um, you know, Rocky Balboa, Sylvester Stallone beats the champ, the black champ, the privileged and pampered black champ. Um, and Rocky is the underdog, um, the white ethnic underdog, the Italian stallion, who somehow manages to, I mean, even if in the final fight, you know, there's, you know, it's stolen by the, I guess, the black champ or whatever, but but very much the moral economy of the film is that is that Rocky ends out on top and sort of wins through. Um, now that story has been really well told already as part as a kind of iconic text of the white ethnic revival. It's absolutely there in Hollywood. And that's something I'm at behind the scenes and institutionally in the industry, white ethnic revival. Um, but with, with Rocky, again, because I like to look at production and text together and see how, um, how they interrelate. What I was particularly interested in showing was that, um, that, uh, that Sylvester Stallone, who plays Rocky, he's also the, the scripter, it's his story idea, and he's the scripter for the, the film. And so he is a kind of underdog that comes into the industry, the kind of plucky white underdog, besting the privileged and pampered elite that's, that's a kind of black privilege, black masculine privilege. Um, and so uh, that had enormous power, I think, for a lot of white people, and the, st the story on screen of Rocky besting the champ, but also as a kind of Hollywood story of, um, you know, of, of kind of the true meritocracy of Hollywood in which, you know, uh, a, a white outsider, a white maverick like Sylvester Stallone, Sylvester Stallone can, can, um, can, can, can break into the industry and tell his story and, um, and have the runaway hit of the year. And, 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 you know, it's, it's such a terrible story really, because, um, you know, it's, it's such an apocryphal story because it, it, it really rests on the idea that black people are somehow, been are over entitled that suddenly they they are the elite that they're they're the ones who have the unfair privilege this is this is neoconservatism this is the neoconservative reaction that that actually america is a is already a meritocracy and so so suddenly uh, black people have been elevated through this through civil rights and black power and so forth and on are a new kind of elite that then need to be um you know righteously toppled by aggrieved white men uh, who never really enjoyed right, white privilege. So that's where the white ethnic, um, you know, Rocky is Italian. So yeah, so so this this captures this is the cult this is the culture wars right here. Um, and and, and a, a character like Rocky and then Sylvester Stallone as an industry force uh, really represent that that backlash politics, that aggrieved whiteness, um, which uh, which targets blackness as an entitled space when of course of course, black people at that point were nowhere in the industry and they were nowhere funding anything. You know, they had no partners, really. So, um, so this is this is the kind of this is the backlash politics, the, the culture wars that that really I think is a is a very powerful story that we we, we still have today with Trumpism. Yeah, I mean the the book uh, as well as being a historical analysis is is absolutely um, essential reading to understand the contemporary uh, cultural production. Um, contemporary film and, and contemporary uh, issues of, of inequality. And, and, and on that point, I just wonder, where do you sort of go next in, in, in your own analysis? Are you thinking about further uh, work on, on this uh, subject in this space? Um, or are you going to be working on something uh, completely different? <laughs> um, well, I, I would love to do more work uh, on this. I've got a lot more, you know, I, I really feel that the contemporary period in Hollywood, very much, you know, uh, you know, the 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 late sixties, early seventies was a kind of blueprint and set a lot of the trends, which we've, you know, in complex ways 
um, you know, over time, you know, it's come back around right now, you know, with, with films like Get Out. I mean, I guess in my conclusion, I do t- I do offer quite a detailed picture of some of the trends as I see them um, today in Hollywood. And, uh, you know, what, if anything, the story of the late 60s and early 70s was that, that, that a kind of robust attempt at affirmative action, at fairness, at equity was rebutted. It was powerfully and fundamentally rejected by uh, the white majority um, and that that's, that has held true. And so this move towards the kind of hustler creative or, or, or you know, self-determination is, um, you know, of, of Melvin Van Peebles as represented in films uh, like Superfly and other films. That that really is the, the way that's been the kind of roadmap in, in contemporary Hollywood, I think, for um, uh, for uh, uh, a new kind of black filmmaking culture to emerge. Um, uh, if we think of, of Spike Lee, he starred in the films and from and was able let from there to sort of create a, himself as a kind of auteur star that then could get the funding behind the scenes, um, script his own films. So that, that's that you know that's obviously the you know the classic black self self determination story in in the post civil rights period and it really captures you know you can't wait for whites to in the industry to to do the right thing. So you know he you know he he self starts and you know as Mookie at the end of. Do the right thing is classic text, and you know, he gets paid. He gets paid by the white pizzeria owner, picks up the money, and of course he did with that film. And he's that's a story of self determination. And we get similar stories where what I've what I what I show in the conclusion really is that um, is that uh, that the kind of performative power, that the kind of the, the kind of virtuosic performance, really, I guess, of African Americans in particular, um, can be used then as leverage to open up a very exclusionary white industry. So you start as a star, you establish yourself first as a performer. Uh, if we think of Jordan Peele and Get Out, you know, he's a comedian. You start first as a performer and from there, then you become, uh, you know, you can then get the get get the funding and, and open up, use that as leverage to try and, because of course these, um, you know, very sophisticated black film workers know, black film performers know, just as they did, in, as Poitier did, that unless you actually hold the purse strings or unless you can put the package together, then you really are disempowered. There's, it really narrows what what's possible to do on screen. So there's, there's a real shift of creatives from performers and then into production. And that, that's really, and that's, that's really a, a story of self-determination that black Americans in particular have been able to, um, uh, to, to, to develop very, very influentially. And, and, and that's a positive story to end on. <laughs>